0: It's the wonky show. More students are in paid employment than ever before, does that matter? Uh, plus the Mab is getting crunchy and the LLE has been in the Lords. It's all coming up. I don't, I don't think it reflects that
1: they regret having done it. I think it, it just goes, this wasn't, this wasn't what was sold to us. This isn't what we saw on the movies. This isn't what our mum and dad told us about. It's, it was It was different and it, it wasn't really what, what our, pre, you know, our, our predecessors had. <laughs>
0: Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm Wonky's Associate Editor, Jim Dickinson, and joining me as usual to get across the week's big developments, three fabulous guests. Uh, In Hendon, Caroline Upton, he's Deputy Vice-Chancellor for Global Innovation and Impact at Middlesex University. Caroline, your highlight
2: of the week, please. Oh, hi. My highlight of the week. Well, it's been a great week, actually, for highlights, but um, I was part of the launch of the r4r like narrative cv by a group that's been working on this and i've been part of that by uh uuk and ukri working together what was great about that is it was a genuine cross-sector collaboration great stuff link for that in the show notes
0: in heslington ben voliamis chief exec at the university of york students union ben your highlight of the week please uh, good morning. Uh, my, my highlight of the week was last night where
1: me and my daughter, after several years waiting due to COVID disruption, uh, got our Austrian citizenship uh, officially conferred and actually we discovered uh, that we can now vote in the Austrian elections, meaning for my daughter, who's, who's only 13, that she will be able to vote um, at 16 for, for an Austrian government before she can vote for a British
0: government. <laughs> Fantastic. And in Kruken, Somerset, James Coe is Associate Editor at Wonky. Jimbo, your highlight of the week,
3: please. Good morning, everyone. Ben, I look forward to the Austrian Democracy spin-off podcast that we can get involved in. Uh, So for those of you who've been following my trials and travails as a new dad via the Wonky podcast, uh, I've taken up running again for the first time in six months. And yesterday I ran my first 5k as I get back into it. So that is my highlight of the week, Jim. Great
0: stuff. So yes, we start this week with the uh, how do I pronounce this SAYS uh, the HEPI Advanced HE Annual Survey on the Full-Time Undergraduate Student Experience is out and Ben there's big news on students at work
1: yeah so the, the 10,000 uh, UK Undergraduate Student Respondents and, and a lot stayed very consistent year on year That um, there's pretty much no change in the perception of a degree being good value, uh, very consistent around uh, those who felt that the experience had exceeded their expectations. It's still at 19%, so not a huge amount. Um, A very similar amount who would choose the same course and institution again. But the big story is the number of students who are now reporting that they are in paid employment. That's risen year on year from 45% to 55%. So for the first time ever, more students are reporting that they have to work alongside their studies than those who don't. And, uh, you know, these are students who are also reporting uh, where they're working that they're more likely to consider leaving. They're less likely to say that they would choose the same course, um, and all of this suggests that we're, we're at real uh, risk of seeing a growing population forced into work because they can't afford their study, um, and that then that makes them more vulnerable to dropping out or being less happy.
0: Yes, Caroline. One of the really interesting things that uh, I think was in there was I was kind of expecting, you know, the kind of where Happy where can uh, and Advance actually add up the total of the number of hours that students have kind of attended classes and, and the number of hours that they're actually kind of working and studying I expected that to go down but actually that's gone up and when I interrogated the spreadsheet this morning when I got off the sleeper one of the things I found was the people who are working more hours are also the people who are studying more and that must be quite punishing
2: yeah I think there's all sorts of paradoxes in this report but in 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 some ways it's it's Stuff we've known for a long time, and anybody who's who's been teaching for a long time um, knows to expect that it's often been the students who are dealing with multiple responsibilities, caring responsibilities, whatever it is, work, other things, and fitting in their studies that have to be really organised and and driven and motivated and and often perform really well. Um, but somehow there's something else going on here, I think, which is this mounting pressure that, that students are under to. To juggle things and then we shouldn't be at all surprised when that leads to students feeling stressed and not happy and worrying about their finances and their mental health and everything else. And I, I think it's been a problem in the sector for a long time that if we add up the hours in the week for students who are working increasingly long hours and studying notionally full time, that is more than the available hours in the week to them. And you know, there's been a degree of complicity in this for a long time and I think it's it's it feels like something is is rising here that you know is going to burst and has to be addressed in the next few years because it's just it's just creating an intolerable pressure yeah yeah
0: James look I mean you know one of the things we've talked about on the podcast before is you know you, you know ma- ma- making the ma- making the week on campus more flexible so that people can combine their kind of caring responsibilities and work with study but one of the things that strikes me about that constant you know drive for more and more efficiency in the in the week of a student is it doesn't half put the pressure on as Carol Ann says and I, I was reflecting on your blog a few weeks ago about there not actually being any time to just kind of sit about and shoot the breeze
3: yeah i mean if for uh, listeners who've not seen it, it's my blog about the quiet death of hanging out so what my argument is is that the value of universities in some regards is the time to get to do not very much at all to get to spend time with friends to get to pursue things you're interested in to just spend time doing you know now as far as you want I, th- I think the big bit for me jim is that we should think about this as a choice, right? So if you look at the ONS statistics that came out in October, November time, what they basically said chimes with a lot of this. Students are going to work rather than studying, they're cutting back on social life, they're in some cases cutting down on bills and heating and eating or whatever. That is a fundamentally different set of choices facing students too. I choose to go to work because it's good for my CV, I choose to top up my maintenance uh, grants a little bit. And I think the implications are profound, So it's not just that students are having a worse experience. It is almost a sense that a lot of programmes are becoming part-time by default, not by design, because students simply cannot afford to be there because they're working instead. And secondly, to me, there's this sort of massive moral dilemma where we've geared our entire access conversation around get students in and then support their success. But if students can't materially function in an institution because of these enormous pressures on them then how do we still maintain that access in and of itself is always a good thing? I think it is hugely uh, difficult to square these circles.
0: Yes, and it feels like it might be coming to a to to a crunch point, I guess. Ben, one of the one of of the things that um I thought was kind of interesting in there was that kind of level of regret, the regret level, you know, and I've I've talked before um about how our kind of regret level when people graduate appears to be higher than a number of other countries. I pulled out the Netherlands stat again on the on, on the blog this morning. But in particular, um degree apprentices appear to be you know, not having their expectations met, not having value for money, not experiencing belonging, and also saying it's bad value for money. What on earth is going on there?
1: Yeah, I mean, I've, look, I think, I think
0: if, if you'll indulge me for a
1: minute, I mean, the first thing I'd say,
0: just going back to
1: the amount of students who are having to seek employment alongside the study, uh, it, this was not surprising. And I know I have spoken with a whole bunch of student union chief execs who share something over the last six months where suddenly we've got students who who already work for us for maybe 15 hours a week coming to us and saying, I'm sorry, Ben, unless you can double the amount of hours available, I'm going to quit and go and work in town. Probably a lower hourly rate, probably in a more unpleasant, less flexible job. So, so why don't you just give me the extra hours, Ben, and and, and you know help me uh, afford to live? Um, so this was very unsurprising, I'm afraid. Um, uh, coming back to your question about kind of, uh, you know, graduation dissatisfaction, I suppose. Um, I, I think there's probably a whole bunch of things going on there that, that you know, the, the kind of rose-tinted view of, of, of what you get when you come to university over the last few years has not been the same as it would have been in the three years prior to a cost of living crisis and, and COVID, right? You know, that they really are graduating into a very complex world where they feel that they're kind of pawns in, in all sorts of weird cultural wars, where they think the economy is changing shape where they had less money to, to to socialize and hang out and just procrastinate as james suggests where they were locked indoors for periods of time i mean i mean i don't i don't think it reflects that they regret having done it i think it it just goes this wasn't this wasn't what was sold to us this isn't what we saw on the movies this is not what our mum and dad told us about it's, it was it was different and it, it wasn't really what what our pre you know our, our predecessors had
3: if i can just t- t- touch on that like I don't think regret in and of itself is always a negative thing. There's lots of things I regret, but it's the ability to do something about that regret. And unfortunately, we have a higher education system which is exceptionally inflexible. It is really hard to change your mind once you start doing something the majority of programmes are geared around a full-time education system and we know part times dropped off. And when you read through the report, even if you look at these you know, novel and emerging types of learning like degree apprenticeships, they also turn out not to be all they're cracked up to be. It's, it's really hard if you regret it to then not live continually through regret during your time of study that there's not many other options if you realise whatever it is is quite for you.
0: Yes, it's interesting, I think, that it's, you know, it's a report that is about full-time students. But, you know, there are various sections where you're reading it thinking, you know, they may not want to be, you know, half the number of credits... Part-time student with no maintenance support, they might just want to do, you know, they just, might not just want a bit less study intensity. I guess we'll, you know, we'll get to that when we talk about the LLE later. The other thing, though, Caroline, that I was thinking about on this work stuff, there's a couple of academics at your place that have done some really, really interesting stuff on what's actually happening to students in jobs these days. Because I still talk to people in universities, who imagine that, you know, students are wandering off to a pleasant Saturday job in the local CAF, and actually, they're often in a, quite a miserable you know, a kind of warehouse in the middle of the night sort of thing. Is there stuff, you th- do you think, that we can do about pay and conditions and the quality of work that students are getting?
2: Certainly. I think there's a huge area of work to do there because, um, as you say, you know, you often find that students, when they are on campus, are too tired to really be benefiting as they should um, because they've maybe been working half the night and and then traveling and commuting and you know they're not having this sort of boarding school extended field trip that that um, they see in the movies and I think when you said it's not like they see in the films you know, we've got, you touched there on a really important point which is The expectations of student experience, I think, are still being based on a model of student life where people do hang out and where they all live communally and, you know, they they kind of have extracurricular um, fun and activities. And, and that, particularly post-COVID, is not the lived experience of many students now. And I think universities, many universities, certainly my own, are doing an awful lot to really adjust the student support and the offer to the reality of, of students' lives now. But that doesn't match what they see in the movies. And, and in a really outcomes-based system, we've also got students um, being led to believe that they should measure the value of their university experience by their salary on leaving. And of course, in the wake of COVID, that has also been affected to, you know, and students are graduating and going, well, where are all these opportunities that I thought were going to be there? Everything's changed. So I think both in terms of experience and outcomes, there's still a huge amount of uncertainty hanging over students. Uh, And in terms of the, the work, I mean, you mentioned the research on the work. One of the things that's very apparent is that students often are not clear or confident about their rights um, as employees and I think we've there are still people out there who are willing to to exploit students and to offer them you know a valuable learning experience in inverted commas um, which is often a compromise for the pay and conditions that they they should have so I think there is there's still work to do in in um, making sure that students are really clear on their rights and they understand what they can and can't um, ask for but also in, in making sure that we represent the student experience and that we measure the value of what we're offering in a way that is realistic and updated. And I don't think as a sector, we've always been great at that.
3: Just, just on that, Caroline, I, th- I think you're entirely right. And Jim, when I was reading your blog this morning, talking about this bifurcated student experience between the people who can access, you know, basically cash capital to do stuff and then the people who can't. And uh, I suppose what I'm struck by is we risk ending up this system where there's a group of students who can keep doing stuff because of dint of their background, who will then benefit from that sort of stereotype or traditional benefits we see of students. There's a group of students who are going to be entirely reliant on universities' ability to provide bursaries and support and advice, of which we know is particularly difficult given the financial circumstances universities face. And then I think there's probably this group in the middle who are neither so struggling as to take advantage or benefit from the range of things universities can offer, but are neither so advantaged that they are going on the field trips and doing all of these bits and pieces of work and extracurricular stuff. So we end up with this unhappy squeeze middle. And then on the other end, this sort of disadvantaged group who aren't getting the benefits anyway. And I suspect that group is going to get larger unless something drastic happens with maintenance or support or university approaches. Can can I come in on that? Because the
1: um i i was I, I, this week earlier this week i was reading the um the office for students annual report and and the the kind of the comparison of what we can read in Lord Wharton's uh, foreword on that document to, to, to what the data is telling us from from HEPI and Advance HE is, is really quite stark. So um, the eminently unconflicted Lord Wharton said in his opening remarks to, on, on the annual accounts that we regulate to ensure students have a good academic experience and that they get value for their investment. Um, he went on to say that in a year where students faced added cost of living pressure, that's even more important. And I can't help but feel that as the OFS chair, he should use some of his very close ties to government... demand more than a 2.8% increase in the maximum available student loans because he knows that there's continued bad news about inflation and students are hyper exposed to that with their rent and their travel and their food, all subject to inflationary pressure and now we've got a bunch of happy and advanced HE data telling us that they're all forced to work excessive hours on top of their study as well. He's in a position, you know, he's set himself the challenge of kind of existing and brokering in that exact space and I'm not seeing a lot of
0: Yes, I mean, you know, that inflation question is really interesting, isn't it? I mean, when we record on Thursday, inflation figures are out today. And obviously, that's a big news story in the wider kind of macroeconomics of the country. But food inflation is 18.4%. Milk, cheese and eggs is 27% year on year. Um, Renting a room, median rent, 8.3% up. And the maximum maintenance loan in England is going up 2.8%. And of course, the other thing I keep saying to people about the maintenance loan is because wages are going up quite fast and because the threshold over which you can you know you can't any longer claim the ma- the maximum maintenance loan is fixed a huge number of families are going to be ripped out of being able to claim even the maximum maintenance loan this this, this September which is which is extraordinary, really. And, and you know, th- th- there doesn't seem to be a way out of this, does there? I mean, y- anyone got any ideas about how to persuade the government to not keep rolling out the same 15 million quid twig that it does?
3: I, I mean, in terms of how to persuade the government, Jim, I, I, it's not an economic argument, is it? There's no way you can look at the current situation that students are facing into and say, actually, I think this is satisfactory and it's fine. There is this whole moral argument piece here of basically what we're saying to students coming in is, yes, we know you won't have enough to survive, and your men's loan now tracks below the minimum wage, according to the latest statistics, but I'm sure it'll turn out fine in the end. I mean, it's <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's it's absurd. And I, I think the two <coughs> things that I think about is, on the ONS statistics out in October and November, more students taking on credit and alternative forms of loan in order to support their studies. And then we think about how these students are going out into the world, where the argument with student loans has always been, well, they're not really a proper type of loan. But now students are undertaking proper types of loans as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Often so, uh, what, what that you going know, you know Klarna-style loans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I kid you not, I was walking around a university probably two or three months ago, and there was posters up on the walls for pre-loans on student loans in order to arrive in your bank earlier and spread out. I mean, th- these are the real conditions that happens when basically you say to students that poverty is okay. It's yeah. it's absurd. It's grim stuff, isn't it?
0: Yeah. Ben, on on this, you know, let's just divert for a minute on some of the moral questions. Obviously one of the interesting bits in here was also on free speech and You know the revelation. Although we kind of knew this already, the revelation that it turns out that whilst there is a you know a small group of students who you know don't think they can express themselves on campus for all sorts of reasons, you know the, the the groups on campus that that don't feel they can express themselves is an EDI concern not necessarily the way it's kind of painted in the press. And I have this sense that universities are going to get their NSS stats, look at the analysis and think we need to target, I don't know, black and minority ethnic students or LGBT plus students. And if they do that... Arif Ahmed will be going, don't you dare, because that's all wokery. Damned if you do and damned if you don't. I, 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 uh, on,
1: honestly, the, the honest truth, if I think about students exclusively for a minute, I think students are, are kind of broadly aware of the noise around, around free speech uh, coming at them from every direction. And they know they're being accused of being snowflakes at the same time as being accused of filibustering free speech and so on and so on. They're just tired and bored of it. And then they're, they're frankly disinterested in it, the critical mass by a long way. You know, they, they feel like they are now the subject of culture. Wars and and they're just gonna sit there being kicked from left to right um i I think you're right that universities and unions are now having to students unions are having to think about what you know what is our role in in helping our broader communities to navigate that space and um and and i'm not convinced it's the right thing for us to be prioritizing our time on when as we can see there are students who are struggling with the cost of living but you know that's that's those are the cards we've been dealt
0: Mm. Caroline, just before we uh, finish on this, obviously one of the things it's actually quite hard to discern in here is that although students are working harder, and although there are some stats about, you know, how many lectures and seminars are being held online or in person, what, what we can't quite see is the extent to which students are, you know, asynchronously experiencing teaching and learning rather than being on campus, you know, kind of having to choose to not come to campus what's your sense of you know that kind of post-covid debate about being on campus what's your sense about where that's at
2: I think it's still unresolved it feels unresolved to me Um, I think we're still trying to hold on to the benefits of the flex in terms of the flexibility that it gave to students um, to, to be able to work from home or from different places and and not have to do ridiculous amounts of travelling and I speak as someone who works in a university where very many of our students do live at home and commute across London so we already have a slightly different model from that which is um you know set up as the norm I think in the sector of having residential students so um Most of our students are already commuting and the hybrid mode gives them some flexibility to be able to do that more efficiently and spend their time more efficiently and reduce the cost of unnecessary travel. So that is good. Um, I I think there there are things we're not seeing. I think we're not seeing yet quite how it's affecting students' reflection time, students' engagement with work beyond the fixed um, contact hours. I think we're not quite seeing yet how uh, how it's affecting their social engagements, um, but what we are already starting to see is um, it, is the the impact on non continuation of, of um, students from particularly from the more disadvantaged groups that are just finding the pressure financially really intolerable and are not making the value for money argument stack up. And I think what we're what we're going to see if we're not really careful is increasing um uh, you know an in- increasing gap uh, between between the rich and poor, if I can put it that way. But that you know that the disadvantaged uh, in our communities are really the ones that are going to suffer the most as this continues um, because. They're just trying to square circles that, that ultimately can't be squared, and, and um, that's, that's very painful. I think we've got to keep an eye on this really closely over the next um, two or three years.
0: Well, great stuff. Lots of stuff on uh, the site about the Student Academic Experience Survey. Probably more to come as we dive further into the cross tabs. Now, let's see who's been blogging for us this week.
2: Hi, I'm Mac Marshall. I'm the outgoing Education Officer at Newcastle University Students' Union. This week for Wonky, I've been writing about queering higher education. As it's Pride Month, it seemed appropriate to consider what queering higher education actually looks like. through looking at representation, celebrating and championing and support services, including the dreaded extenuating circumstances forms, how these are all key facets to making HE more accessible for queer students. And it's a really good opportunity for outgoing and incoming officers to consider how we can foster inclusive practices, pedagogy and processes and create safer spaces for LGBTQ plus students on campus.
0: Now, UCU's marking and assessment boycott rolls on. James, what's uh, what's the latest?
3: So, marking, assessment, boycott action over pay and working conditions set to continue up to September 2023, potentially. The details of what's uh, inspired this, the nature of the actions, all available on the WONG site, so I won't go through it now. But I think a few things that are of note. So, what does the Office for Students expect providers to do where there is a marking and assess boycott? Well, they've written to heads of institutions to say we expect three things. Number one, that students are not disadvantaged. Number two, that students can graduate. And number three, that degrees reflect actual achievements.
0: Kind of three-way (laughs) seesaw.
3: Yes, and a very, very difficult balancing act to uh, extend and spoil that metaphor. So if you expect that, what conditions do they think universities should be worried about? They think they should be worried about C1, consumer protection law. Are students getting what they were promised in going in a marking assessment boycott? They are concerned about B1 and B2. Is there a high-quality academic experience? Before is their effective assessment? And E2, are universities operating in the way their governing doctors say they will? Interestingly, we are starting to get a lot of nuance and new viewpoints emerging about the marking assessment boycott. The Office of the Independent Adjudicator has said that universities should be providing more clarity about conditions, appeals and the like. The Chief Executive of UCIA, the Employers Representative, has written for Wonky uh, recently, asking for a shared perspective about university finances so that UCU and UCA are You see, are talking from a shared point of view. If you read the 13 comments underneath that blog, it is clear from UCU's perspective that this isn't about a shared perspective, but is actually about the material conditions of uh, people they represent. And we're also now starting to hear from universities themselves. So the Exeter University Executive and their UCU branch have called for a re engagement. I think, probably most importantly, in this, the students, if you are following Twitter in the education space even lightly, you will see lots of complaints over things like receiving participation wards about temporary marking about the quality of feedback so this looks set to rumble on without an obvious solution in sight all the while stakeholders and the ofs are certainly getting twitchier about what is happening
0: yes now 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 ben i i i I, I will be genuinely trying to be careful about how how i say this because i'm just for once i'm not actually trying to wind people up when i say this but one one of the things that i think is really interesting here is uh, uh, clearly a really widespread deep impact is is not happening so you know there are clearly you know, 10, 15, maybe 20 universities where this is hitting hard, where, you know, universities are unable to cover the marking through other staff. And even in those 10 or 20, often it's pockets, it's particular departments and so on. And, you know, there's no doubt that if you're in the middle of that and you've been taking action, it will feel like the whole sector. But I have to say, sometimes I'm on social media and people are saying the entire sector is being engulfed with blah, blah, blah. And I'm thinking, you're talking about parts of the Russell Group. And the danger, I think, there is that... It's really hard to see how collective bargaining can, you know, when every university is in the, is in the mix, can ever get to a point where it says, well, okay, well, there's, there's, there's 20 of you where, you know, that's happening. Um, we'll accede to your demands because there's 20 of you. I mean, you, you know, you would love to think, I think UCU would love to think that, you know, everyone would do the greater good thing, but that's kind of not how it works, is it? Uh,
1: I, I totally agree with, with some of that analysis. So, um, again, I've been uh, spending time with networks of student unions, Chief Execs have been kind of comparing, contrasting notes about about the scale of the impact and how it's been received by students and what the mitigating actions are. This appears on, on my kind of unqualified sample. This appears to be an almost exclusively Russell Group problem. Uh, even within the Russell Group, it's very um, clustered around particular academic departments. I, I, you know, I, I don't I don't really want to kind of name names, but you know, there's only one uh, department at York where there is widespread impact. Um, you know, it, it's almost untouching any other academic discipline, right? Um, uh, so, so, you know, so so it, it is clustering and it's, it's splitting, uh, you know, staff, it's splitting UCU members, it's splitting students in terms of the impact, it's splitting institutions, um, if, if I'm right, and it's a, an overwhelmingly a Russell Group problem. I think the, the other thing I'd say on, on kind of differing impacts, so the, I think, you know, I, I know I was guilty when I was trying to kind of think about how MAP was going to affect students uh, in, at my institution and i was kind of overly concentrated on uh, you know on what happens if i don't get a mark and how how would that be mitigated increasingly what we're seeing not just at york but elsewhere i've seen some kind of wonderful twitter threads a, a, on this where students are sharing some awful some embarrassing feedback and, and so the, these are instances where students are actually getting marks but 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 as you know uh, you know feedback like what an interesting piece i mean that is not feedback that's it's that's
0: provocative spelled frankly spelled p-e-a-c so, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: It, well, exactly. And and um uh, you know, and so if you get a borderline mark, you know, you, all your worry about am I going to get a mark is now gone, but then you're going, right, so why have I got a borderline mark? What does it mean? Where, you know, what do I take away from this? And you're given a, a kind of one line statement of nothingness about your piece of work. Suddenly, your anger is not about the mark at all, it, it's, it's about the actual, the, the kind of depth of the learning experience. I think question 14 on NSS is going to take an absolute pummeling in, in Russell Group institutions based on some of the stuff I've seen. Shared on social media.
0: I mean, Caroline, obviously, you know, I, I, I think that, you know, there's a kind of differential impact, but in many ways, there isn't a differential reputational hit, is there? Because it's often this group of universities that the press talk about. It's often this group of universities that, you know, international uh, observers will look at. There, there, there is potentially, depending on how it's handled, a real reputational hit to the sector.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. But we always have this problem when there's something which is quite nuanced and on which there's quite a lot of discussion in the sector that 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 just isn't going to be um <laughs> that isn't going to be understood or reflected in the wider perception of what's going on or the wider coverage of it um and so it is just going to come across as you know those overprivileged universities you know, mistreating their students yet again and i think that's a that's a real shame because that isn't the reality actually it, people work really really hard in all sorts of roles in the sector to make sure that the students are very well served and they most people who work in higher education don't do it primarily for the money they they that's not to say they don't deserve to to be adequately rewarded but they come into it because they're driven by passion and the passion is often for um, providing excellent student learning experiences and student learning outcomes and so i think it, it It really is frustrating. It does us all a disservice when things like this potentially give ammunition to the parts of the press um, and and beyond that that just want to say bad things about universities and and, um, misrepresent the care that goes on in them.
0: James, I mean, we were talking earlier in many ways about kind of tailor two cities with with students. I guess one of the things that has kind of really come come to the fore during the dispute is the extent to which some universities are probably able to to meet the demands relatively comfortably, and other universities, you know, are in the middle of redundancy programs or freezes on, you know, quite significant freezes on redundancies, both explosions and implosions as I would call them. Is, you know, can, can that, notwithstanding, you know, the kind of you know, in principle tweets that I see, which are about you know redistributing money or, or, or student numbers, which you know d- don't feel within the realm of possibility at least right now. He's national, can national pay bargaining survive?
3: Straightforward question, there, Jim. um So, I, right, this is, I think there's there's a couple of perspectives here. So, I think one of the reasons why the action seems to be getting more attention, more vocal, more um, extreme is the wrong word, but I suppose more vociferous is that there was a point where a resolution seemed eminently possible. So, if we think of not so long ago, UCA said that their offer of an improved de- uh, pay deal worth between five and eight percent, they said, "Look, this is our highest pay offer in nearly twenty years." Participating. UCU members rejected that at a 56% threshold. So it's not miles away. But I think the problem is, if we think of what is the dynamic here, well, as you said, there are institutions at the top, who you may presume actually would seek a more generous pay settlement in order to settle the dispute. There are institutions who have less finance, who actually the pay settlement as it is, is going to have knock on effects to their ability to employ more staff, their ability to invest in services, etc, etc. So I think I get where when the chief executive of UCA wrote, we need to develop this shared financial perspective. But I don't think the perspective is the problem. I think the problem is the, um, I don't want to use the word bifurcation again, but this huge gap we are seeing with institutions who can afford to absorb pay increases, changes to pensions, etc., and those who simply cannot survive to do it. So what do I think will happen then in the long term of collective bargaining? I think there is no incentive to move away from it at a political dimension because as soon as you get into one-to-one negotiation, it becomes much harder for institutions and much harder for unions too. And generally, I think collective is a better thing than not. But in terms of the economic position, it is clearly not feasible for the institutions who were saying I can't afford a pay increase to be forever dragged a lot larger pay increases what i suspect we might see is more actions like when that um, Cambridge college bought themselves out of the pension fund of institutions doing things like one off pay awards one bonuses etc cetera, etc cetera, in the hope of quelling down local action so collectivism will survive but with significant local variations within it yeah
0: with lots of kind of you know bells and whistles and tweaks and so on yeah
3: and like extra holidays and bank holidays and one off bits of cash and you know puppy rooms or whatever there'll be bits and pieces of trying to quell local air disputes
0: ben where i've got into um um you know kind of discussion i'll I'll put that in air quotes discussions with 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 people on social media is one of the things that I've, i've often reflected on this year with you know there's been lots of strife in the public sector um is that most of the kind of other public sector pay disputes have tended to um, have ministers as their target, right? You know, they've 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 not really talked so much about the kind of local bosses. They've talked very much about ministers. Now, obviously, UCU have got went in quite hard fairly early on on uh, vice chancellors, and you know, they you know their, their, their perspective is their perspective, which is about you know large salaries and uh, mismanagement and those sorts of things. But you know, but I, I guess my hypothesis is that has taken actually a bit of pressure off you know, ministers, to actually solve the funding problem. It's really interesting that whenever there's a row with, with, with schools, we get a press release from the Secretary of State. We never get a press release from the Secretary of State about the higher education dispute. And there must be, you know, that, that must be having impacts in terms of the amount of pressure you feel to go and, you know, argue with the Treasury. T- totally. And, and this, look, this
1: is an economic problem regardless of... Uh, of your perspective, regardless of whether you're talking about it as a student saying, this is how much I've spent and you won't mark my work, regardless of whether you're a staff member uh, and an academic saying, you know, this is how much economy I create within the institution and you'll only pay me that much, regardless of whether you're a vice chancellor saying, I'm trying to deliver wonderful, enriching experiences to thousands of th- students and train up nurses and doctors and teachers, <laughs> um, but, but the government have capped me at this much money. So it's it's all, it is, it's all about the economy and it's an economy that was created by ministers I, I, I totally think we're it's, it's all, it feels like almost navel gazing that we're arguing with each other when
0: we haven't really got the levers to pull carolanne i mean look do fees need to
2: go up um, something needs to go up i mean <laughs> <laughs> i think you know the point was made earlier about lack of understanding of of university finances and i think the lack of understanding beyond universities and even within them of university finances is is something that desperately needs to be addressed um, I mean, we could go back a, a long way um, in in sort of policy history to right back to the introduction of fees, and I'm old enough to remember that. Um, and I don't think there was very much public understanding then that that the introduction of fees was being accompanied by removal of grants, and. And they, the different basis for funding of universities has never been very well understood. And the, the freeze on the, uh, the cap on the UK fee is causing massive problems. And that is the fundamental problem. The student loan book, the cap on, on the fee, that is something that just isn't working. I don't know what the answer is. Um, thank goodness it's not quite my job to solve it, but it is an economic problem, and it is a formula that just isn't working. And I did hope when when COVID hit and we had the uh, the discussion started to emerge around international students and the costs of research and all of all of that kind of funding model that underpinned that the funding of the sector in the UK um, that we might start a discussion towards really looking at the reality of, of of how universities are resourced now. That seems to have gone quiet for all sorts of reasons, but we're left in this really difficult position with more or less fixed income and rising costs. And that's...
3: Yes, just on that, Caroline, I, I mean, I, I don't know the answer either, but I think it's... I mean, to, to your question, Jim, putting up fees i.e. charging students, say, uh, £13,000 a year rather than 9250 pounds is going to be politically unpalatable and likely impossible in current financial situation. The alternative of just get more students are in the uncaps, uh, in uncapped fees, i.e. international students or BGTs, I'm not sure is possible for everybody and there's clearly a moral dimension. So the options you are left with, short of universities en masse, putting what is seen as additional, which i.e. stuff outside of teaching research that tends to be the student experience type things that we think are poss- uh, really important, is only direct cash transfers from governments to universities, which is increasing the level of top-up. I can't see another solution that seems politically possible and would actually solve the problem.
0: Well, now the sun's out and our mind turns to festivals. Mark is here with details of one of our own. The Festival of Higher
3: Education is coming. This November, Wonky and the University of London will welcome you to Senate House for two amazing days of one-to-one conversations with HE leaders, set-piece debates and insights from journalists, policymakers, and experts. You'll hear from speakers inside and outside the sector, take part in amazing interactive sessions, learn about new research, data and ideas and meet colleagues old and new, all equipping you with the fresh thinking and insights ready to take back and share with your universities and teams is going to be an unmissable event for anyone with an interest in the future of UK higher education. That's 7th and 8th of November in London. Early bird tickets are available only until the end of June, so do hurry if you want to take advantage of these. Find out more and book your tickets at thefestivalofhe.com or follow the links on Wonky. We can't wait to see you in November.
0: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, if. Only in Theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... Now, finally, the Lifelong Learning Higher Education Fee Limits Bill is in the House
2: of Lords. Caroline, what's going on there? So um, we've just had the second reading of the bill um, and it's worth a look at at what the lords have been, what questions the lords have been asking about it because I had a read of it and I thought there were some really good questions. Unfortunately, not too many answers yet. So um, uh, generally... I think the sector will welcome this bill and they'll welcome the proposal and they'll welcome the principle of it because, um, as James said earlier, I think... um Our model is exceptionally inflexible and the majority of programmes are still geared around that uh, three-year monolithic degree programme. And we've had various attempts to to introduce a bit more flexibility to reflect some of the lifestyle pressures and the the financial pressures that we were talking about even at the beginning of of the programme today. But it's very difficult to make it work and what's singularly lacking at the moment is the detail. As with all things, but particularly with this, the devil will be in the detail. So we've got nothing about eligibility. We've got nothing about maintenance. That's a really big gap. Um, and, and even the sort of long-term viability of the funding amounts that have been set out. You know, you, Given what we've been talking about and all the, the uncertain futures around what things might cost and who might pay for it and how students might manage that experience financially, Um, You know, there's a lot of uncertainty, really, when you're looking at something which has a, um, a long horizon, a far horizon into the future.
4: So this is, I judge, a sensible technical bill. But the question is, in the real world, will it actually be an impactful bill? And there, I think we have to acknowledge uncertainty. The government's own impact assessment says, quote, It is too early to confidently predict the likely response of providers and learners to the introduction of the LLA fee limits and the impact on provision, choice, and take-up. That is true, but I want to suggest that beneficial impact will likely need five further actions. Two on the demand side, as it were, to widen eligibility for lifelong learning support, and three on the supply side, to widen educational provision. On the demand side, uh, there are, I'm afraid, some early signs that the proposed approach to lifelong learning fee support may struggle to attract many people. Uh, the uh, Department for Education and the OFS uh, short courses trial, as I understand it, has so far only advanced loans to 37 people looking for new skills or career changes, uh, which, as David Cahanan has pointed out, is rather fewer than the number of MPs who are leaving uh, at the time of the next election uh, looking for new skills
0: and career changes. Uh, You know, there are obviously big questions here about, you know, logistics, all sorts of questions about whether there's any actual demand for this, which, um, you know, DK has gone over, certainly in terms of the trials. But, I mean, Ben, you know, one of the things that really strikes me is, there's there's actually, in theory here, quite a lot of thinking about the way in which you can, you know, effectively apply the credit system to the student loan system when it comes to, to maximum tuition fees. But, there, you know, as Caroline says, there's nothing in there on maintenance. So, you know, for example, if a student said, I want to use my entitlement um, to do 120 credits, um you know across the three across three years do you know what I mean like lots of this stuff hasn't been thought through I said, you know what if a student just doesn't want to be full full-time in the way that we've talked about at the top of the show <laughs> you know perhaps because they've got a really demanding part-time work you know they've just had a bereavement or something that not no thinking has been put in there which I just find astonishing yeah I, I mean I um I don't disagree with you
1: and yet, let me, like, so to, from a really selfish point of view, I'm doing a master's at the moment. And when I decided I wanted to do a master's, actually, I, d- I didn't decide I wanted to do a master's. I decided I wanted to learn. I wanted to, to develop. And so I start looking at what's out there. And, you know, I'm guilty of, you know, searching for a particular master's. Course. I probably started off searching for MBAs or something. I can't remember. And and But, but you know, as a full-time employee with a family based in the North, a young family and I'm based in the North and, you know, with commitments and with COVID going on, I'm sat there. And I'm trying to think about well you know actually I need to find a course that's flexible enough for me to duck in and duck out is is it is it going to be in person is it part-time is it full-time you know there's loads of questions that I'm trying to explore there and it was really bloody difficult to try and find a course that was accessible to me as a mature student with with commitments in my life and I won't be the only one right and and I, you know, I'm now I'm on the penultimate assignment for that for that right now. I can and never and
0: remember a time when you weren't doing that math. <laughs> well,
1: um, uh, I'm on I'm on the penultimate assignment now, and I'm looking back and thinking, do you know what? I, maybe with the benefit of hindsight, if there had have been an option available to me just to do module A, B, and C, maybe I'd have taken that and not given away quite so much of my life. <laughs> do you know what I mean? But but that that wasn't an easily available option. So. I do. I, so the modular I take, principle is good, you know. Is, is good in principle, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But I mean, I totally <laughs> agree that you know how, how how would the funding work for something that's a bit more modular? I, I think some universities. I mean, and, and again, you know, when I was looking at which universities could actually accommodate my learning needs, frankly, there weren't very many. Uh, you know, like the way that I wanted to learn, you know, just wasn't accommodated for as a mature student with a job and a family and based in the north of England. And and so the options were really really limited. And I guess, you know, we've set out a vision here for lifelong learning, which I think is is important and exciting and is the right vision. You're right. There's a lot of work to do to work out how that is, is translated into real opportunities.
3: I mean, you know, Jim, Ben, Caroline, it, do you tell me to think otherwise, but I still can't work out who lifelong learning is for. So in theory, do I think it is a very good thing that more people can study in different ways at different times of their lives, particularly where they've not had the benefits of qualifications in the past? Yes, absolutely. Who are the students who are not interested in the residential model of which university is built around and simultaneously do not want to go full time to their local institution, whose employers are flexible enough to allow them to learn through different models and have the prerequisite qualifications which presumably universities will still ask for? It seems to me to be a quite small pool we are fishing in. I'm not convinced that this is going to be more impactful then thinking about the tweaks that could be done to things like student finance allowances for part-time learning to looking at increasing the eligibility and uptake of degree apprenticeships which are primarily to mbas for people already in employment and also through making online study more ubiquitous but all the political messaging is more people should go face to face so i think it is a great idea i'm still not sure where the demand is coming from
0: so that's about it for this week remember to dig a bit deeper into anything we've discussed today you'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com don't forget you can get the latest show automatically when it's out just search for The Wonky Show wherever you get your podcasts and to find out how we can keep you and your organisation ahead of everything going on in UKHE do head to the website to find out more about our subscriptions so thanks very much to carol Ben, Jimbo and news editor Michael Salmon who makes the show happen behind the scenes Mark will be here next week I promise Uh, and until then stay wonky (laughs)